take, take your Bible, Romans chapter 1. We're continuing our study in Romans. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we started this uh, study, and uh, I kind of introduced the idea of, of reading epistles, what that looks like, how we should read epistles, and then also uh, some of the introductory work with, with the book of Romans. Uh, we talked about setting the stage here in the book of Romans. If you just look at Romans 1, um, we see a description of Paul. And if, is it, can you, can you put it on the screen behind me? There we go. I'm going to have my, my, my computer up here so I can highlight things and you can see certain things I might point out to, but, but point to. But uh, in general, you're going to be just in your Bible and taking notes. And also here, there's some information you might be able to find useful. Uh, we talked about the book's theme, which is the gospel. We see that right off the bat in the very first verses here in Romans. Paul says he's a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. So we have the gospel of God, the gospel that comes from God, the gospel whose source is God. This is the, the point, the whole, the whole gospel, the whole, the whole letter, actually, the epistle, could be tied up in this, the message of the good news of Jesus. Um, and what he's going to lay out as he describes the gospel in this first section, then he's going to give us the need for salvation among the Gentiles, which we want to be, un- be sure to understand that as, as Paul is delivering this, the Jews knew they needed salvation because uh, they were constantly being told about their sin. The Gentile people, the, the question could have come to a Jew's mind, okay, what do the Gentiles have to do with this? They're, they're not part of the Jewish nation. Why do they, shouldn't they just be judged by God? And so the, uh, the question of the Gentile need for salvation is going to come up. We're all the way down in verse 5 is where we left off last time. We talked about uh, this introduction. Let's just read these verses to get caught up. He says, the gospel of God, which he, describing this gospel, God promised before through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. You have the, the identity of, of, of Jesus as Son of David, King, and also in His resurrection, He is proved to be Son of God, and He is, uh, in His identities here, we have the, the authentication of His work as Messiah. Through Him, we have, verse 5, received grace and apostleship. Here is where we're going to start today. Verse 5 and 6 tell us that through Jesus... We hear Paul talking about himself receiving grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Let's break this down. The verse 5 and 6 tells us the purpose. Here's your blank. The purpose of the gospel. The purpose of the gospel is that through Jesus, we receive both the gift of God, the grace of God. That's what the word gift means, grace. Is that big enough? Can you see that? Do I need to make it bigger? Let me make it a little bigger. Is that better? Yes? Okay. Okay, I'm getting thumbs up from some people. Others of you don't care. That's fine. The grace of God is the gift of God, and the apostleship is, is his calling to bring that message to others. The word apostle has at its root this idea of being sent, being sent by Christ. And it comes from Christ. Notice what he says. We've received grace and apostleship for obedience. Let me find it here. For obedience to the faith. This word for has this idea of it's through obedience to the faith of all nations, through him, through Christ, they have received this grace to the result in the obedience to the faith among all nations. Um, this 
purpose of the gospel was fulfilling a promise given to Abraham all the way back in the book of Genesis from the very beginning. In fact, if you have your Bible, you can turn there, but I'm going to just turn here, Genesis 12, and I want you to see what um, God tells Abraham. God tells him, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. You shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. Notice this last phrase, and in you, what is the result? all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is called the universal blessing, that God through Abraham was going to bless the entire world. And if you go back to Romans chapter 1 verse 5, he says that the grace and apostleship is for the obedience of the faith among all nations. Who are the nations? The Gentiles, right? They are the people. It's not just the Jews. It's that the people, the Gentiles, the Gentile nations, the pagan nations of the world could become a part of the blessing of God, could receive the blessing of God, could actually become obedient to the faith. And look at verse 6. He says, among whom you are the called. This, is, this, this idea of the blessing of many nations was the uh, mystery hidden for ages that we see um, uh, described in the Bible, this idea that I think the original audience would not have fully understood, the, the Old Testament would not have fully understood that God's plan of the Gentiles being included in the called of Jesus. I mean, look at verse 6, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. The fact that the Gentile people would have been belonging to Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, would have seemed pretty radical, pretty, pretty wild to them. And we see this actually play out in the book of Acts with the discussions about uh, circumcision being required for Gentiles. In the book of Galatians, when Paul addresses the legalism that was going on with the people wanting, uh, they, they thought, well, if you're, a Jew, if you're a Gentile, if you're pagan, in order to become a Christian, you have to first become a Jew, and then you can become a Christian. And what Paul taught us and what the Word of God teaches us is that, no, that's not the case at all, that, that God's Word teaches us that, that this was always God intention, God's intention that all the nations worship Him who created them. So back to Romans um, 1, uh, let me just go 1, 5. And he says, um, this was accomplished. If you notice, um, let's see here. Let's look at verse, are we in verse 7, verse 7 yet? Let me see here. No, not quite. Oh, verse 5. Look at the end of verse 5. Obedience to the faith among all nations. What's the last phrase say in your Bible? For his name. What does that mean? For him, for his reputation. This was all done for God's glory, for God's reputation, for God's fame. God is glorified in the inclusion of Gentile people into the body. God, God is glorified in, in expanding faith, not just among the Jews, but also among the Greeks. This is a big deal in the book of Romans, this idea that, that God has given salvation through faith. It's not just through the Jewish people. We'll see that play out in several different chapters in the book of Romans. So Paul's audience, he says, you who are the called, notice he calls them both Jew, uh, well, I don't think he calls them this Jew and Greek, but we often will see uh, Paul call them Jews and Greeks or Gentiles. Greek and Gentile in Paul's language is the same. So um, th this, this was something, a, big, a very big deal. And in verse 7, he finally gives us a formal greeting in verse 7, a formal greeting where he says, uh, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. In this kind of a, of, a, of a greeting, he's greeting those who are in Rome. This is a very Christian greeting. He calls them beloved of God. They are called as saints. Oh, what does the word saint mean? Do you remember? We, we've talked about this before. Um, the word saint means a holy one. 
uh, one of the saints is just one who is set apart. And who are the saints? We are the saints. Yeah, we're getting it, right? We are the saints. Christians are the saints. We're not talking about uh, these St. Thomas Aquinas or whoever, St. Nicholas. or you know, We're talking about you and me. We're talking about the believers in the church. They are the beloved of God. God loves them. That's what that means. It's, it, God beloves them. They are called to be saints, just like Paul was called set apart for a certain purpose. They are called. They are set apart. And, and grace comes to God. Peace comes from God. And notice that both the Father and the Son are involved, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So in his introduction, Paul has already mentioned Jesus the following ways. Look at verse 1. He calls himself a bondservant of Jesus Christ. In verse 3, he calls himself, let's just open this up here. Let's see, verse 1, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. In verse 3, he says, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, calling him our Lord. In verse 4 and 5, he calls him the Son of God with power and the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And then in verse 7, he calls him again, Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the identification, Christ is the center of the book. It's the gospel of Christ. So, and we get to the first big break in the book. This is the introduction. This is the greeting. And then he begins in verse 8, what I call the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel. The word gospel just means good news. And in these verses, Paul outlines the good news that he has brought. And he is beginning really the body proper of the book. In fact, you see this word first right here? That's like a Roman numeral one. It's like saying, hey, we're going to start off with this topic right here. Here's where we're beginning. Number one, the gospel fosters, in your blank, is thanksgiving. The gospel fosters thanksgiving. I want you to notice he begins by thanking God. I thank my God. So he begins with thanksgiving. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you that your faith is spoken of throughout the world. Who is his, faith, who is his thanksgiving aimed toward? It's aimed towards God. I thank God, but he's made possible because of Jesus. I thank my God through Jesus for you all. That's who he's thankful for. Why is he thankful for them? What's the reason for his thanksgiving? He hears about their faith wherever he goes. He travels throughout the world, throughout the whole world, he says, to know the known world. And as he travels, everyone tells them about the Romans' faith. And this is, again, proof or a hint to us that Paul has not yet met them, but everywhere he knows, everywhere he goes, people talk about them. I think this is really good news when we think about the theme of the gospel, that is, the people of Rome are accomplishing what God had initially designed the children of Israel to do. If you go to Isaiah 42, verse 6, um, we see the desire of um, God's desire for the nation of Israel. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people as a what? What was God's design or purpose for the, for the Jewish nation that they were to live out the covenant with God and what were they to be to the Gentiles? A light so that people saw the Jews and saw them as a light and it would draw them to a relationship with God. Did they succeed or fail? They failed miserably, right? They failed miserably in this job. And yet what we find here is that actually the Roman people are doing what... Um, what God expected the Jews to do. In fact, if I go back a verse, let me go back to verse 5 here. 
Um, and we see what, what he says here. He says, thus says the Lord, God, the Lord who created the heavens, stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and, and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people of spirit who walk in it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you a covenant to the people as a light to the Gentiles. He's, Paul, he's encouraged by them. The gospel fosters thanksgiving. The gospel allows uh, fellowship. That's your next blank. The gospel allows fellowship. Um, if you look at verses 9 and 10, he begins with an intercessory prayer because he's saying that they belong to each other. Romans 1, um, 9, for God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if by some means now, that I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. Paul is invoking God, talking about the seriousness of his claim here. He says he wants to come to them. He desires, he desires, he makes mention of their prayers. He, he, he prays for them often. There's this intercessory prayer. Paul's prayer life was very strong. I think he, he's incredibly strong in his prayer. He calls himself uh, someone who's praying without ceasing. And he uses the word always to kind of emphasize that. This is a praying for them. And I want you to notice also that there is a common bond here between the Romans and Paul in their relationship with Christ. He says that without ceasing, I make mention of you in my prayers making request, if by some means I may find a way in the will of God to come to you, that I may impart some spiritual gift that you may be established. What's the reason he's coming? There's encouragement and equipping going on. That's your next blank. Encouragement and equipping in verse 11 and 12. He wants to come to them to see that they are established, that they are strengthened. They are encouraged. He longs to see them. And the spiritual gift is probably the result of his interaction with them that results in them being established in the faith. That's what I believe he's speaking of here. The relationship here is between the spiritual gift and the visit. He comes, he imparts this gift to them, and they're able to be established in the faith and encouraged with them. This word just means strengthened or made solid. It means not needing a support. You are strengthened by one faith and encouraged just uh, means exhorted together. This word, is, you might be familiar, I, I've mentioned this word before, but parakaleo is a, is a Greek word that means to come alongside and to exhort. It's, it's in Romans chapter 12 where he said, I beseech you, brethren, or I exhort you, brethren, by the mercies of God. I come alongside you. The Holy Spirit is called a paraclete. It's the noun form of that same verb, meaning someone who exhorts, someone who comforts. Jesus says, I will send the comforter. That's that word. And here he's saying, we will be mutually comforted, mutually encouraged, mutually exhorting each other. And then the next future ministry and fruit among the Gentiles. Verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now that I might have some fruit among you also. What is the word fruit indicating? What is he talking about here? people getting saved. I want to have people come to Christ among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. He is submissive to God's leading. Notice how submissive he is. I, I, I wanted to come to you, but was hindered. That I had plans, but God had other plans. He was referencing possibly here even some spiritual forces working against him, possibly some human influences, possibly God himself deciding not to allow Paul to come to that point. But he was excited to come because he wants to see converts. He wants to preach the gospel and people become believers. Fruit among you just as the other Gentiles. Look at verse 14. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, 
to wise and unwise. What does he mean by debtor? What do you think he means by that? As he's a debtor to the Greeks and he's a debtor to barbarians. In what way would he be a debtor? What do you think? Yeah. He owes it to God because God gave him a responsibility to be an ambassador. Right. He is under obligation. He is compelled by God. He considers himself in debt to them. He must go and preach the gospel to them. Do you consider yourself in debt to people yeah. to preach the gospel? You should. We are. We are in debt. We are under obligation to present the gospel to people. And when we do not, we are disobedient. I think sometimes we pat ourselves on the back when we present the gospel and we say, boy, look at me. I was pretty good. I got to present the gospel to somebody. And, uh, you know, I had, we ought to always see ourselves as indebted as he did here. He is a debtor. He's under obligation, not just to the, the, the cream of society, to Greeks and barbarians, wise and unwise, to preach the gospel of Christ. He is non-discriminatory when it comes to who he preaches to. He will preach to anyone. I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. He says, I am ready to come and to preach the gospel. That's the main theme here. Why? Look at the next uh, big uh, section here. The gospel fosters thanksgiving, the gospel allows fellowship, and the gospel brings salvation. Look at verse 16 and 17. This is a verse that a lot of you know, and it really sums up one of his, his, his major thoughts about the gospel. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. For everyone who believes for the Jew and also for the Greek. For in, the righteous, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Let's break this down. He begins by saying, I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed. I am not bashful about. I am under obligation to present. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, the good news about Christ. Why is he not ashamed about it? Because he explains the gospel is what? The power of God to whom? right? Everyone who believes. Now, it is the power of God, but it is for everyone who believes. If you're a believer, you have experienced the power of God in salvation. It is not, we do not believe in universalism, that, that God saves everybody in the world, regardless of their response to him. The Bible is clear. There are those who believe, and there are those who believe not. There are two categories. And for those who believe, the gospel is the power of God. That word, too, has the idea of resulting in. It, it is the result of, it brings salvation. It is the power of God unto salvation. And there are two different people here in, in view. To the who? The Jew and, you see the, the, the theme extended, right? The Jew and the Greek, the, the Jew and the Gentile. We're not just talking about the Jewish nation here. The, the gospel message has expanded beyond that involves us. I mean, I'm not a Jew, and I'm thankful that the gospel message has expanded beyond the Jewish nation. We can partake in the gospel because it is the power of God. It is the working of God. It's not just the word of God because the power of God works through the message of the gospel in powerful ways. Uh, I have in my notes here, you might want to check out 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, verses 18 through 20. In fact, while we're here, why don't we do that? 1 Corinthians 4, 18 through 20. Um, he uses the word power here. That seems very similar. Yeah, okay, here's the reference. Paul says, now some are puffed up as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills, and I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. Do you see that, what he's saying? He, he says, I will know the real thing. I will know what they're, what's really happening. 
if I meet them face to face. They're saying one thing, but do they have something to back it up? And it's the same idea here in Romans where he says the gospel is the power of God. The word of God made flesh is the word of God working. It's not just words, words, words. It's actual power. Not that God's words are ever words. You know what I'm saying? Just words. That this is God's words have impact. If we keep going, he gives the intended recipients here in Romans 1, 16 and 17, which are to the uh, Jew chronologically and then the Greek. Um, God's power is not just for the Jewish people. As I mentioned, Paul's going to use Greek and Gentile interchangeably because the world in his mind was divided between Jew and non-Jew. Um, the world was Hellenized by Alexander the Great. That means that most of the culture of the world was Greek. It's pretty amazing that the whole modern world pretty much spoke Greek even though the Romans were in charge because the Romans had conquered after the Greeks and because the Greek language had spread, the gospel uh, could be spread quickly with the Greek language, which is why our New Testament is written in Greek and we often speak of the Greeks here. Look at this phrase um, here. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Um, If you know something about Martin Luther, you might know that these verses played a huge role in his conversion. And the righteousness of God, this idea of the righteousness of God was a transformational concept to him. When you see the word righteousness of God, what do you think of? Perfect. Okay, perfect. God's perfect righteousness. Good. What else do you think of? His holiness. Do you think of, let me put this, when, when, when Luther saw the, this, the righteousness of God, he was overwhelmed with fear because he thought of righteousness being something God possessed that we did not have. And, and if you read him, it, it's amazing. He talks about when he recognized, when he was studying this in the original language, he recognized what was actually being said is that God's righteousness is what's given to us. And it is not something that God is holding back. It's something that he gives. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That that as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The the cry of the Reformation, the just shall live by faith. Does anybody know what verse that's from? In the Old Testament? Yeah, Habakkuk 2.4. If you have a reference Bible, there's these little things in the middle of your Bible, a little margin that has all those little, the little numbers and the little verses. You can look, as, and that's cheating, but it's okay for this kind of study. You can look in the middle and see what it's referencing. The just shall live by faith is quoted from the book of Habakkuk. He's referencing the Old Testament. And the old, it teaches us here that a person, a justified person, is living by his faith, not his works. And that finds its root in the Old Testament covenant. It becomes fully developed in the New Covenant through the works of Jesus. But here we see the, the power of God, the righteousness of God. God's perfection is revealed from faith to faith. Now, this phrase can mean a lot of different things. It can be rendered from faith from first to last. That is, it's all about faith. Uh, it can be beginning and ending in faith. There are a lot of different ways you can translate this phrase. But either way, the point he's making is that faith is the key to knowing God's righteousness. It's not about works. It's about faith. And this is how the Gentiles are included in the nation, uh, in the kingdom of God. They cannot be born into Israel. It's not about blood. But they cannot, and they cannot earn righteousness through the law. They must come to righteousness by faith. And this is why we are here. This is why we are gathered. We preach a message of faith alone in Christ alone. 
And this is so foundational. This is what he's preaching in this passage. We keep going, we see the good news of the gospel, and then secondly, we'll see the bad news of the gospel. If you keep reading, uh, let me just keep going here. This is a, uh, he switches here and starts talking about the wrath of God. Why do we need salvation? Why do we need justification? Why do we need righteousness of God? Because God's wrath is on those who reject the gospel. God's wrath, W-R-A-T-H, the wrath of the, God's wrath comes on those who reject the gospel. The Gentiles need the gospel. They were experiencing God's wrath because of their lack of relationship with him. You, you just have to put yourself in a Jewish mindset. Why did the Jews experience the wrath of God? Because of why? Disobedience, right? Because they had covenant with God, and they disobeyed the covenant. So, God disciplined them and brought the, and, and but, but you can imagine the Jewish person thinking about a Gentile and not understanding that God's wrath was also on him. They didn't have a covenant with God like Israel had a covenant with God. Why would God care? In, in, the old, in an Old Testament mindset, or in a, I should say more of a pagan mindset or an ancient mindset, every person was responsible to their own God. What did my God have to say about you? Why did that matter? But our God we serve is not just the Jewish God. He's the God of everything. He created the world. And his covenanting with Israel, his promises he made with Israel, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and all those, all those um, promises are also made to the, the Gentiles. And the people in the world are experiencing God's wrath because they have rejected him. Look at this in verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What are they doing? Why, why are they ungodly and unrighteous? They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That means they are actively, unrighteously suppressing the truth. How can you say that? Look at verse 19. Because what may be known of God or about God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. You mean God has shown Gentiles truth about him? Yes. How? Verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. Does that sound like any Old Testament to you that we've recently talked about here? Something that's invisible, that's clearly seen? Something that's inaudible, clearly heard? Ringing a bell yet? Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day to day, utter speech, night to night, reveals knowledge. No speech, no language. Their voice is not heard, yet they're constantly speaking. And here he says, the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, his eternal power and godhood, Godhead, so they are without excuse. Verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were dark, and professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. God's wrath is revealed from heaven. Look at this. God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Everyone who practices ungodliness remains under the hand of God's wrath. And this is, I go back to Exodus 32 in the golden calf incident. God's wrath was against idolaters. And the same picture is here, that God's consuming wrath will come against those 
who are rebelling against him. God will consume those who have sinned and acted in unrighteousness. What are they doing? Verse 18, they are suppressing or holding down the truth. Uh, Your translation might say hold the truth. The idea here is a pushing down the truth, refusing to listen to the truth, uh, suppressing truth. These men are actively suppressing God's truth in unrighteousness. They are unrighteously suppressing the truth of God. God has shown it to him. God has revealed it to them. God has revealed it in them. So they are without excuse. Since the creation of the world, they are without excuse. A key idea here. This is why we believe that all men are accountable to God. That they are without excuse. Okay? These invisible attributes are understood by created things. So again, we have the two different categories. We have the creator and created. This is very important in a moment. The creator creates, and he has authority. The created, responsibilities to worship him. What do the created beings do here? They are created by him, but they do not recognize him. They knew him, but they did not give him credit or glorify him. They weren't thankful. Instead, they became futile. And notice what happens in verse 22. Because they knew him, they were thankful, they became futile in their thoughts. Futile means empty. Their foolish hearts were darkened, and they become fools. Notice the fall into immorality. The great exchange by those who reject the gospel is that blank there. The great exchange exchange by those who reject the gospel. He's like, they know the truth, but they deny the truth. Their foolish hearts were darkened. And there are three steps here. The first is ignorance. Verse 22. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Is there not a better description of our world today? I mean, if you turned on the TV, if you listen to these people talk, they profess themselves to be wise, but in doing so, they become fools. In Greek culture, wisdom was elevated. Sophia is what they called it, sophos, wisdom. And they, they thought of wisdom as the highest, and they, they elevated their thoughts, and in doing so, they become fools. Notice what comes in verse 23, <clears throat> they, idolatry from ignorance to idolatry. What do they do in their foolishness? They, the word changed could better possibly exchanged. They exchanged the glory of an incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. The, the God, the creator, is the one we should be worshiping. What do they worship instead? Idols that they create. Uh, think about how foolish this is. Imagine you have your wedding ring, or ladies, imagine you have your diamond that you got from your husband, which you cherish, and one day you decided to go back to the jewelry store, and you didn't want it anymore. You exchanged it, and instead of that, you really, really wanted a ring pop. Now, do you know what a ring pop is? When I played baseball as a kid, we always loved getting ring pops. Ring pops are the little ring you wear on your finger, and it has a sucker on the top, and you can suck the sucker on. It's, it literally is what it says. It's a ring pop. It's amazing. You ought to have one. And they're, uh, <laughs> I, I haven't had one in a while, but they're full of sugar. Can you imagine the folly of turning in a, a pure, a perfect diamond for a ring pop? Um, that's the analogy that doesn't even compare with what people are doing. They're exchanging the worship of the incomparable, almighty, infinite God for worshiping that which is foolish and, 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 and created by them. They made their own image. They exchanged the truth for a lie. They call uh, foolish, they call, they look at uh, 
wisdom, they look at wisdom and they call it foolishness. He calls him here the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. Incorruptible has the idea of decay. So God does not change. God does not decay. We've been talking about this on Wednesday nights. God's character, God is unchanging. And yet, what happens if you leave something out for a little while in the, in the sun? It gets bleached. What about if you leave it out in the rain? It gets messed up. You know, it gets, it, it, the weather and the elements have an impact on everything. They're corruptible. So what happens next in verse 24? Because they have made this exchange, and they are now worshiping not the Creator, but the created beings, what does God do for them? What does God do to them? There is an immorality that follows. It goes from ignorance to idolatry, and lastly, to immorality. Therefore, and that word therefore gives us what? A conclusion. It tells us the result of all that happened prior. Therefore, God gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Okay, notice again the distinction between creator and created. And they worship the created rather than the creator. So God gives them up to the lust of their hearts. And what's the first thing they dishonor? Their bodies. There is a direct connection between dishonoring the body, the human body, and dishonoring God. Why? We're made in His image. If I took a picture of your mother, hung it in my office, and threw darts at it, and you came in one day and said, Pastor Marshall, what's the deal? You put a picture of my mother up on your wall, you're throwing darts at it. That's not very nice. I said, what's, what's the problem? It's just a piece of paper. Why do you care? It's, a piece of, it's, it's not your mother, it's a piece of paper. No, but it's an image of your mother. And what I do to an image shows what I think about the image bearer, right? The, the image, the, the person who, the image bearer, what I do to that shows what I think of the person whose image it is. So if I treat that picture, you all have a picture maybe of a loved one that you treat with respect around your house, maybe their deceased grandmother or someone you love so much and you have a special place and you treat that picture with respect because it's an image of someone you love and someone you cherish. What you, how you treat that shows what you think about. So how you treat your body, how you treat other people, demonstrates what you think about God. The, the defiling of the human body is directly connected with the exchange of the truth of God for the lie. They, and then they end up worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Look at verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. He allows them to pursue their sexual desires that are perverted. And he gives an example here of this immorality, a perversion of the natural relationship between men and women. And this is so pervasive in our culture today, but it directly comes from a rejection of God. You reject God's authority as creator, and God, let's just face it, there are things, there are things you cannot determine about yourself. You are a certain height, whether you like it or not, okay? You have a certain skin color, whether you like it or not. You are either a man or you are a woman, whether you like it or not. You, you have certain features about yourself. You can't change. Some of you have certain color hair. You don't like that color hair, so you change it. That's not saying that. I'm not saying that's sin. Please. I'm just saying that you, some people, some, you know, some people get real, you know, you are limited. We are limited and defined by God, and some people do not like that fact that there is a creator who gets to define who they are. 
And this cuts to the very heart of the issue where we are in our culture today, which believes that you can be anything literally you want to be. It's a rejection of a creator, and it's saying, I am the creator. I create. I myself determine my identity and my truth. You see the difference? It is, is a huge difference. And here in Romans, in the Bible written 2,000 years ago, the Bible explains to us clearly where the roots of this kind of thinking come from. This is nothing new. The stuff we're facing today did not just show up in the past five or 10 years. This has been a heart issue with mankind for a very long time. So what happens here? He's speaking of homosexuality and the perversion of the natural relationship between men and women because women exchange, the word is metalasso. It's the same word used in verse 25. They exchange the natural use with men for that which was against nature. So God, God determined who you are by your biology and your genetics. God, God gave you a body, and he just said who you were. And these people who reject God say, oh, yeah, you're not going to tell me who I am and who I'm not. I'm going to do what I want to do. And the men also, he says, leaving their natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another. Men, commit, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which is due. That is that they are committing shameful acts. This is, this is nothing to, um, uh, uh, there, there are, there's, no, there's nothing here except, I mean, this is exactly what you think it is. And it's very clear. There's been a lot of Christians, and this just burns me up. I see, I see a lot of Christ, so-called Christians trying to twist the Scripture and say, well, you know, the Bible isn't really clear on these kinds of relationships. We have to show a lot of, uh, you know, patience and love and acceptance. Friends, it, it's extremely clear. The Bible is extremely clear where this kind of thinking and where this kind of behavior comes from. It comes from, first, a rejection of God's authority in your life. And then the opening of your heart and your lust to whatever you want to pursue. And what follows, he says, men receive in themselves the penalty, penalty uh, that is due them, which I think has a little bit to do with the kinds of, immor- the kinds of uh, diseases that come along that were pervasive in the ancient culture and are even pervasive today with massive kind of promiscuous behavior among certain demographics. So this is exactly what he's talking about, this immorality that comes uh, from your separation of God and, and um, that God releases them. Part of the punishment that God gives them is to let them do what they want to do. Do you see that? God does not restrain them. He says, okay, you want to live that way, you do that, and you'll receive the natural consequences for that kind of behavior. We keep going. We're going to finish this chapter today. In verse 28, he says, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, what does that tell you? That, that very often people, when they are engaging in these behaviors, are aware that God disapproves. It is unnatural. It's wrong. Has ever, ever, ever occurred to you why it is that many of these groups have pride parades? And I believe it's because in their heart they feel deep shame because they know what they're doing is wrong. And they know the shame that is associated with evil and wicked behavior. And because of the shame, they reject the shame and they embrace the opposite of that, which to them is pride. And I think sometimes a person's punishment is give just receiving from God exactly what they want. They do not want to retain God in their knowledge. God gives them over to a debased mind to do the things that are not fitting being filled with all unrighteousness. And then he lists these all, and I have them all on my paper. We're not going to go through each one, but I'm going to note a couple. First, um, if you go down to the word, uh, let's see here, 
evil-minded here, evil-minded in our translation in verse 29, evil-mindedness has the idea of a bad habit, someone who is uh, doing, being mean-spirit of being hurtful to others. Um, the word whisperer is a gossip, someone who gossips about others. Being a backbiter, a hater of God, one who hates who God is, one who is violent. That's a fascinating word. This word violent is um, our word for, actually is, uh, is where we get our word hubris from, someone who is audacious and bold in their violence. Proud boasters, a show-off, pretending to be what you're not. Inventors of evil things, evil strategies, someone who's always coming up with bad ideas. Disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, that's faithless. Unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. And then if you look at verse 32, they know the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death. They not only do the same, but they approve of others who do the same. We, this is a dangerous place to be. And what Paul is setting up here in Romans 1, if we have to sum it up in one thing, is this. He's showing us the need for salvation. He's saying, here's the need. You, you look around you, and you look at the world around you, you, you Jewish person, you see the Gentile nations, and you see what happens when they reject God. They, they did not hold God in their thinking. They suppressed the truth, and look at the kind of wickedness that follows. I wrote a little summary here, and I'm just going to read it for you so you have it. Um, you can listen if you can. The power of the gospel is needed for the whole world, not just the Jews, but for the Greeks. The power of God is needed for every person alive. This is the basis of our missions programs, the purpose of sharing the gospel with those who have not heard. The pagans who live in sin do so because they know God's standard and they reject it. And after rejecting God, immorality and idolatry soon followed. Their ignorance of the Mosaic law does not mean that they were not held responsible for their disobedience to God because they are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And he, he lays out the, the, the downward spiral of sin. But thanks be to God, we have Jesus who paid it all. Amen. Amen. Praise God for that. What questions do you have on Romans 1? We're going to close in a minute, but I want, I've been trying to give opportunities for questions. And I know you've been giving me some feedback, but what, any questions you have about this very just downward spiral of sin, you might call it? Yes, sir. I have a comment. Oh, go ahead. If we truly believe that the Bible reveals God and His righteousness, right? and the, the gospel is the power of God through salvation for all who will believe, knowing the world we're in where people are walking to hell, how can we be quiet? That's right. Because you can't witness to the second person until you witness to the first person. Right. So all of us need to realize when we walk out our door every day, just ask God to put one person before you. Uh, 100%. He will do it. And he will give you the word. I think you're exactly right. You'll have a second person that day. I just challenge everybody. Think of everybody walking to hell. And please warn them and let them know. I think there has to be an urgency on our side. And, and it's important for us to recognize that people need... Christ. And people, I think the thing that I also pull from this is that very often people know what they're doing is wrong. There is a guilt that people have. You talk to people enough about this, there is a guilt that they know. God made, God made them. And there is a sense that in their heart they are struggling with what the world tells them is okay to do, but in their heart they often know. Now sometimes God has given them over to a debased mind where they don't even feel it anymore. 
but very often I think you ought to pursue those, pursue them with love, share, share with them the gospel of Christ and those who are in sin. Absolutely. Thank you. Any other questions or comments on Romans chapter 1? So far, we've seen the gospel, the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes the Jew and the Greek. Why do the Greeks need salvation? Well, because they have followed the spiral of sin. The next chapter, Romans 2, we're going to get into next time, says, okay, now why do the Jews need salvation? Why do the Jews need salvation? That's the next question he's going to answer in Romans chapter 2. 